Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. 1115 service. How y'all doing this morning? All right. I would have expected the caffeine that you've had to have cycled through your bodies a little bit more. So how are you doing this morning? Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, Again, thank you so much for being here. Like Colin said, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to spend this time together to gather here uh, in person in our auditorium. So thank you for all of you who came here today. As well as online, thank you to those of you who are checking in to these conversations that we're going to be having via live stream. We love you, and we're so thankful for you. Um, It is just a thrill and a privilege uh, to be here with you this morning. If you don't know me, just give me a second to introduce myself. Uh, I'm, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And I got to say, it's such an honor for me to be able to stand here and interact with you in this way because I love it. I just absolutely love it when we all get the opportunity to gather together, whether that's in person or online, and just position ourselves underneath God's word. Uh, Guys, we believe here at the the Medina East Campus that every single time we rally around the Bible and when we open its pages, that this is God speaking his message, his heart, his love to us about who he is and about what he desires for our lives. So it's just an awesome opportunity to share in this time together and have this conversation. Uh, Real quick, if you are, like Colin said earlier, if you are a guest here with us this morning, I want to say an extra special thank you uh, for you being here. We say this a lot at Medina East, but we really do. We say it a lot because we mean it. It is a privilege for us to be able to host you, to kind of open the doors of the MEC family a little bit, and to have you participate in what's going on in our community of faith here, uh, to again, hear from God through his word, and to be challenged in our lives to take whatever next step maybe the the Lord is asking us to take um, as we uh, undergo or continue on in uh, whatever spot in our spiritual journeys that we are in. So, and I, actually, if you are a guest with us here today, bonus, there's a bonus for you. You came on a great weekend. Now, truth be told, every weekend is great at the Medina East Campus, but you especially came on a great weekend because I'm here. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So you came on a great weekend. Why? Well, it's because we are launching into a brand new series this weekend, and you can see the series title on the graphics behind me. We are calling this series Formed, an Abiding Relationship with Christ. Formed, an Abiding Relationship with Christ. So you came on a great weekend. Uh, Now, for all of us, uh, as we think about what it might mean to jump into a new series a little bit, my guess is that if you're a human being, which all of you are, my guess is that uh, you're probably going to start asking questions like, okay, we're in a new series. What's the big idea, right? What are some of the big goals? What are some of the, like the destinations that we want to unpack? What are some of the main themes that we're going to be covering? What are the things that we are going to be learning above everything else throughout all the conversations that we're going to have in this series? And for some of you, you might even be like, be like, I'm interested in the series, but I have a question. 
what's in it for me? Like, what's usable about this series and how can I apply it to my life? Well, if that's you, sales pitch, you're in luck. You came on a great day because that's exactly what we're going to do in our conversation today. Today's conversation is going to be a little bit of an introduction. We're gonna tee up some of the main ideas and the things that we wanna learn and run after together in this series. So I'm excited to do that and excited to launch in together with you. Now, before we actually unpack some of those things, what I thought I'd do is uh, maybe something that will be helpful to us, and I might even go as far to say that it might be essential for us to do a little work before we start digging into the big ideas of the series. And that is specifically what I want to do is I want to start to tie some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this series together with the series that we closed down last week at the Medina East Campus, a series that we had been in since about the first of the year, a series that we had called God Is. Now, listen, if you didn't have an opportunity to connect with those conversations in that series, uh, you're still in luck because if you go to our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org, not now, but after services, you know, you can go to medinaeast.gracechurches.org. You can catch up on every single discussion and every week of that series to, to kind of play catch up. But uh, just to give you a high-level overview, here's what we were sort of doing in this series. In that series, we took a look at one passage of Scripture, two simple verses in Scripture, in a place called Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Now, we noted in that series that the significance of just these two verses is huge because this is the only spot in the Bible where God himself communicates his character and his attributes. Like, what we have here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is where God literally vocalizes who he is and what he's like. And we said that this is massive, right? That God is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That the Lord, the Lord means that God is personal and he can be related to. That he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You get it. That's what we kind of talked through in that series. Just God's character qualities and his attributes. Now, as, as a means to kind of um, explain why or give a motivation for why we would have wanted to know that. Like this picture of God and his attributes and who he is and what he's like. We leveraged throughout that series a quote by a 20th century uh, pastor theologian guy uh, named A.W. Tozer. And again, we use Tozer's quote, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen in a second. We use that as, a, as, again, a means to understand why we would even care about a vision of God, why we would even care about examining who God says he is. And so this is the quote that we kept returning to. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us. He said, by, we tend by a secret law of the soul, just beautiful language, right? Like internally, the secret deep law of the soul to move in our lives toward our men, mental image of God. Now, I think all of us in the room and those of us online can probably agree with old A-dubs here, can't we, right? We can agree with old A-dubs because I think we know from experience that our view of God, how we see God and how we interpret that is going to have massive significance in a whole wide variety of spots in our lives. So while I agree completely with what, 100% with what A.W. Tozer here is saying, what I want to do for starters this morning is to issue a little bit of a caution about completely wholesale adopting Tozer's statement without some considerations or a little bit of nuancing, little considerations and nuancing. And most of you are like, what the heck are you talking about? 
(laughs) So rather than take the next 10 or 15 minutes to explain and unfold for you what I mean by nuancing and considerations, I'm actually going to allow another 20th century pastor, philosopher, theologian guy to do a little bit of my work for me, a guy named C.S. Lewis, okay? So this is what Mr. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe himself said about this idea of the importance of our view of God. Lewis says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Check that out. How God thinks of us is not only more important, Lewis says it's infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. And so the tension that I have introduced to you today is nothing short than me offering you the realities of a theologian throwdown, okay? I was expecting a little bit more laughter, to be honest with you, because literally, guys, I'm not kidding you, this is the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life, right? I know that's a sad state of affairs for me to admit that, but it literally is like, I just love superimposing like revered theologians' heads on top of the ridiculous WWE characters. And for the record, um, I, I exercise frequently, and I don't have abs like Tozer. I just have never found the capacity to get abs like Tozer. And also, this is potentially the only time in the history of the world that anybody's seen C.S. Lewis in a unitard. So, uh, well, maybe, maybe Mrs. Lewis has, but we won't even go there, right? So, but here's the real question, to get serious for a minute. Who's right? Who is right? Is A.W. Tozer correct? is our view of God, how we see him, the most important thing that we could think about and devote our lives to. Is he right? Or is C.S. Lewis right? Is it God's view of us that really matters more? Now, truth be told, I think that these two guys and their quotes, they're not mutually exclusive I think they actually agree on a whole heck of a lot more than we might think they would, given the quotes that we've read. But here's what I think is happening. I think C.S. Lewis is helping us avoid some potentially harmful assumptions that we could apply to a quote like Tozer's. That that maybe it looks something like this. C.S. Lewis is helping us avoid this idea that maybe we could assume that simply by having the picture of God put in front of us, that somehow, intuitively, we would just understand and know automatically why that matters and how to apply it to our lives in a way that creates genuine transformation and life change. Like that by some universal cause and effect principle, that somehow we would just have the intuition to know exactly how to take the vision of the good, the encounter that we have in this vision of the one good God, and we would know how to put that into practice in ways that would help us look more like and interact in a better way with that God. Now listen, if that were true, if that was just like a universal cause and effect principle, that would be awesome. It would be really cool. But I think that we know from our experience that it simply doesn't work that way. I mean, if you think about it, there have been scores of people, not only in, contempor- in our contemporary world, 
But there have been scores of people throughout the history of humanity since passages like Exodus 34, 6, and 7 have been written. Scores of people have read this passage, and, and, and even there have been folks who have read this passage who have then claimed to come into a relationship with the God that is described here. That there are folks who have claimed to be saved from sin and death as a result of encountering this view of who God truly is. That there have been people, Christ followers, who have said that they have been born again into a new kind of life. That they are in effect a brand new kind of species of humanity as a result of encountering this God. And yet, for so many including and especially those who would claim to follow Jesus and to have come into this new kind of life, for so many, we still struggle that this view of God hasn't actually changed much of anything about how we live or what we do with our lives in the present. Like we haven't embraced and encountered true life change. Now, you might be saying, okay, I need to push back on that. Dude, that's just like exaggerated pessimism, right? And, and, you know, what about grace? You know, even though we fail and we trip up and we fall, what about grace? You know, the kind of grace that God says is true of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That though we fail constantly, he is faithful. He will maintain love even when we fail. He will forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin when we fail because he is compassionate and gracious. Now listen, if that's the pushback, I will wholeheartedly agree with you. I will concede that point because the reality is that God is gracious, that when we trip up, when we fall, when we fail to measure up to the relationship, God is so good to us. He's faithful. He's committed. He's true. He forgives. But I do not think that we can continue to appeal to grace simply as a means to sweep the realities that we experience under the rug. We just can't do that anymore. You see, what I think Lewis is driving us toward a a big question that, especially for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers in the room, a big question that we just have to ask. And it's this. Shouldn't genuine encounters with the living God show some kind of observable difference in our lives over time? Shouldn't there be some concrete, demonstrative evidence of an encounter like that with the view of God that we have because God has shown himself in scripture to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and all those attributes and all those things? Guys, how is it that for many Christ followers, Many Christ followers are still just as angry with themselves and the world today as they were 25 years ago when they first claimed to have met this God in a relationship. How is it possible that many Christ followers, myself included, find ourselves struggling with the same addictions, succumbing to the same temptations as we did 10 years ago when we first came to know God through Jesus? And this is especially true of me. How is it that my desire to share this God, who I have a portrait of in Scripture in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, how is it my desire to share the hope that that God brings with other people is often dwarfed by my sense of embarrassment of that message? Or at least it's dwarfed sometimes by my perceived inability to communicate that message with clarity and accuracy. Now listen to me, if you are a follower of Jesus in the room and you are feeling this tension, 
I just want to say, I just want to be abundantly clear. This is not, please hear me, guys. This is not intended to be a guilt trip. I'm not trying to heap more culpability and guilt on your shoulders. But I just don't think we can blissfully ignore the evidence that we often see in our lives. Because at the end of the day, I think C.S. Lewis is really directing our hearts, our attentions, and our energies to these kinds of questions. What does God think about us? How does God really view you? How does he view me? And if he thinks a certain way about us, what does God want for us? What does God want to do with our lives more than anything else? What does he desire that we become and be? What has God designed us for? How are we wired The psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What is that design that God has for us that if we walk with him in relationship, we can arrive somewhere close or at least progressively toward the great thing that he has given us purpose to do in the world? And lastly, maybe more importantly, okay, how does the relationship with him that we have indeed been invited into, how does that relationship make all the difference. Now listen, if you are with me on any of these questions, if you have ever felt or are feeling now the tension between the view of God and God's view of us and the lack of evidence of transformation and life change in your life, I mean, this is exactly what we are gonna run after as hard as we can. We're gonna run headlong into this in this series, Formed. You see, Formed is gonna be all about looking at what scripture has to say about these questions, about God's desires for us as human beings and how we might find the power to genuinely change, to become the people that God desires for us to be, to discover how we in God's hands can be formed, how we can be shaped into the vision that God has for our lives. This series is gonna be a series all about how we all have the opportunity in relationship with God to be progressively developed, fashioned, molded, and shaped into what God has created us for. And so before we move on, before we make a few introductory remarks, I'm just gonna pause for a second because I'm on this journey too. And I just wanna make and extend an honest, guys, honestly, just an honest invitation to you. Like, to go on this journey with me throughout this series. Let's not do this individually on our own. Let's run after these things and these questions. Let's hear from God together. And so just from my heart to yours, I'm just gonna ask, are you with me in this? Are you with me? I'm very insecure. Are you with me? I wanna hear from you. Are you with me? Okay, all right. So you're with me, excellent. So now as we start to think a little bit about these ideas, um, as we start to think about the journey that we're gonna be headed on together to kind of discover what God's heart and his desire is for us, um, we might ask the question, all right, what do you need uh, for starters when you're thinking about progressing on a journey? What are some core essential ingredients that you need? And I think before you even start a journey, you need basically, fundamentally at its core, you need two things before you embark out on a journey. Number one, you need to know where you are which I think we all know where we're at. We're right here right now. But number two, what do you also need to know? 
the, where are you going, right? You need to know the destination. And so um, as a means to maybe start crafting a picture of what that destination might look like, I thought we would just all together, since we're in it together now, you've given me your approval <laughs> that you're in it with me, um, I thought we might just undergo a little bit of a, <clears throat> an exercise together, a little, a little moment of reflection and pause and honest assessment. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a fill in the blank up on the screen in a moment, okay? And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to fill in this blank yourself, to assess yourself and to look at your different pursuits in life, where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, where you spend your resources, right? And, th- and follow the breadcrumb trail back deep down inside. What do you believe is the way that you would answer from the core of your being this fill in the blank? And now here's the deal. You cannot give the churchy answer. It's not allowed today. We're not giving churchy answers here because we all know that the churchy answer is always Jesus, right? You can't do that. But here, just just pause for a second and I want you to fill in this blank. God wants blank for my life. Think about that just for a second. More than anything else, more than all the other things in the world, God wants what? God wants blank for my life. How would you feel that in? God wants what for my life? Now, as you start to come up with some of the words or phrases that you would insert there, and as maybe we think about observing people just out there in our culture and how they may, uh, how their behavior and how what they do in life would give us indication of what they really think would be the answer to this fill in the blank. Um, I think when we consider that, I think a lot of us might start to populate Uh, this fill-in-the-blank, in some of these ways. So some people, I think, if you observe their behavior and their conduct, they would fill in the blank like this. God, that ultimately, at the end of the day, God's great goal for my life is that I would be happy. God wants happiness for my life. You know, because the problem I've diagnosed is I'm sad a lot, and I get depressed. And so if that's the problem, if that's the thing that I want want, want to run away from, then God must want more than anything else in my life for me to be happy, to put a little smile on my face, to introduce a little bit more positivity in my life. Now, others, if they would see this, they'd be like, well, yeah, happiness is just kind of skin deep, right? It's surface level. It's really conditioned on your circumstances completely. And so there must be something deeper and more abiding. And so they might answer this or fill in this blank like this. God wants not just happiness, but a deep sense of fulfillment in my life. That what's really wrong is I feel like internally, existentially, a void within my being, that to coin a cliche, there's a God-sized hole in my heart. And so if I've diagnosed that as the problem, then, oh, what God must want for my life is for me to feel feelings of fulfillment and being filled up. For others, it's not fulfillment. They might answer this way. Well, I see out there in the world today, what's wrong with the world, mama? People acting like they ain't got black eyed peas. I love them. Never mind. I just kind of, that was a rabbit trail right there, wasn't it? I, that, that didn't happen before. Okay, so they look out at the world today. They diagnose that something's wrong. And what's wrong is that there's chaos. There's instability. You hear phrases like, well, the only constant in our world today is change. And so what's wrong out there is that things are unstable. And I also know that what's wrong in me is that there's chaos internally within me. So, ah, God must want more than anything in my life is stability in my life. For some people, it's not stability. It's pleasure. God just wants me to feel good all the time. For others, it's not pleasure. It's power. 
that God wants to infuse me with a sense of coercive force that I get my will done no matter what. For others, it's not power, or they manifest power in this idea that God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God just wants me to be filthy rich. For others, it's like, no, it's not about wealth. It's about the wealth of thrill. That what God wants for my life is that same feeling that I get when I'm at the very top of the first hill of the millennium force at Cedar Point. Like, woo, it's an adventure. Not all who wander are lost, you know? Like, that's what God really wants for my life. And for others of you, you're like, no, it goes deeper than that. What God wants is motorcycles for my life. Like, yeah, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know all the Harley Davidson lovers in the room now because they just wooed me. But like, so God was, listen, we could go on and on in a list like this, and I'm sure you populated this with, uh, some different, in some different ways, and there's certainly many more. But what I find interesting about all the things that we could possibly uh, potentially populate this, um, this fill-in-the-blank with is I find that all of these things, or most of these things at least, I would say are, are good things. They are fine things. They are not morally bad. They are not immoral. They're amoral. And I would probably argue that uh, most of these things, I think God might actually want to infuse into our lives as we experience those things, maybe in some healthy ways. But I think, both from our own personal experiences, if we can be vulnerable with ourselves for a second, from our own personal experiences, and also from what the Bible says over and over again about this thing called idolatry or idols in our lives, those things that we substitute in for God in our life, I think that what God knows and what we know and what the Bible teaches is that when we make good things like motorcycles, can I get an amen, right? That when we make good things, ultimate things, we actually inevitably every single time are left empty. We're left with a gaping void in our hearts and our lives and we are left unfulfilled. And so, if none of these things is the ultimate goal that God has for our lives, the ultimate destination that he has for us, we have to ask the question, well, what is it? How does God fill in this blank? Man, what does God want for you and for me more than anything in the world? Now, we could go to a ton of places in the Bible. And actually, the Bible is just like one metaphor and one way of filling in this blank after another. And it all speaks to the same thing. But I believe that we have actually, in the book of Romans, one single verse. One single verse. As a matter of fact, it's not even a full verse. It's literally half a verse. One sentence in the Bible that gives, us, that gives it to us most succinctly and gives it to us clear as day. And I believe that verse is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We're just going to spend a minute or two looking at this verse. So if you brought your Bible, or if you have your Bible on a tablet or device, I want to encourage you to make your way to Romans eight twenty-nine right now. And if you don't have a Bible, if you're here in the auditorium, we have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Uh, Romans eight twenty-nine will be on page 787 in those Bibles. And lastly, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can just go ahead and take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you with you today. It's just our way of saying we want to get God's word into your hands. So this is Romans eight twenty nine. It's written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he is writing this letter to a group of Christ followers in Rome. And so this is what Paul says 
here in Romans 8.29 to the church in Rome, and I believe to us as well. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, so as some of you can tell, there is a lot going on in this one simple sentence, half a verse. Uh, Truth be told, I think we could spend an entire series unpacking each of these words that appear in this sentence because they're very dense, very rich and meaty, and like the well goes deep on each one of these. But for lack of, because we have kind of a lack of time, all I want to do is just take a couple minutes to unpack or amplify two phrases, two phrases, very quickly, that appear in this passage. Two phrases. So the first of these phrases is found here in the third and fourth words, those God foreknew. What does Paul mean when he says those God foreknew? Uh, Now listen, this might be a no-brainer for most of us in the room, for some of you, but I do think it's worth pointing out as we kind of land in here, is that throughout the book of Romans, and especially in chapter 8 here, uh, Paul has been talking over and over again about the way that God has been faithful to, to his promise to rescue the world from sin and death. Like, if you want to know at a high level what the book of Romans is about, it's all about Paul saying God's been faithful to his promises to rescue the creation and to rescue human beings from sin and death. So this means that by the time we get here to verse 29, wait for it, we have to be reminded that the one who is performing the action that will be described in the rest of the sentence is God. God is the subject of this sentence. And you're like, mind blown, right? Because you just, you really can't get this kind of teaching anywhere else in the world. I mean, only at the Benign East Campus can we highlight the fact that God's doing the action. <laughs> but seriously, I think we can, um, we can easily just blow over this. And I think in doing so, we could also miss the great significance of what Paul is doing here with God being the subject of the action that's going to appear. You see, whatever the goal of God is for our lives that he's going to describe in the rest of this sentence we have to be reminded so simply, God is the one who's working it out. God is leveraging all his power, his ability, the same power by which he created the universe and everything in it. God is wielding that power, authority, and character to get us to whatever the goal is that Paul lists here. And think about that, that it's not like somehow God exercised a measure of of power and authority to send Jesus, that when we place our faith in Jesus, we come into eternal life, we we in effect get placed on the road toward the destination or the path that he wants to take us, and then God says, I've dropped you here, now you figure it out. You try to figure out by your own ability and your own power how to make it down the path to the destination I have for you that somehow we would think that God would put us on that path and then leave us to our own cleverness or our own ingenuity to try to figure out how to get to the goal that he has for us. No. Instead, we have to see that Paul is directing us to see that God 
is personally owning the process. For whatever God wants to get us to, what he wants for us more than anything else, it is God with all his power and his authority who is at work to get us to that goal. And now I find this interesting because although it is indeed the faithful God who completely owns, like he owns the full responsibility of getting us to the destination, that fact of him owning the responsibility does not preclude us from embracing his power in a partnership with him. You see, that's what I think is the significance of the second word here, God foreknew. Now, listen, we could say a lot about this word. And again, like I said, it's a very dense word. And there have been a num- like a bunch of back and forth between scholars who are debating as to what this word truly signifies. But suffice it to say that if you were to look up every time that this word appeared in the Bible, you would quickly discover that uh, it appears in contexts that speak about the depth of interpersonal intimacy that God has with his chosen people. And the depth of interpersonal intimacy that occurs in a, like, involved, participative, get this, interactive relationship with his people. So we're saying that it is not only that God owns the process of our spiritual growth to the destination. We are also saying that God offers us all that power and ability. That in effect, as he steers us toward the destination, he wants to lock arm in arm with us that we work together to move toward the great vision he has for our lives. That God personally owns the process, but that God does so. Man, this is so awesome that he does so in relationship with us. He does so in relationship with us. And so, from this point forward, we have God personally owning the process. He does it in relationship. And let's look at the second phrase or the second word. That this same God who foreknew, also, main verb of the sentence, predestined us. He predestined. Now, when I say that word, and maybe even as I posted the scripture verse on the screen a while ago, there are some of you in this room who just got really interested. What's he gonna say? Where's he land on this one, right? And some of you, like, you lean back and you've just been squirming the entire time. Others of you, you're like, why would anyone be squirming or interested in that? What is the big deal? Let me just say, if you're in that last category, God bless you. You live in such a great deal of freedom that the rest of us do not know, okay? Now, listen. This word predestined is a loaded term precisely because for all that we could say about it, precisely because this word has kind of been the keystone for a massive debate that has occurred throughout the history of Christianity, throughout the history of the church. And while we don't have time to go into it too much, this massive debate, let me just summarize it. It basically looks like this, that surrounding words like predestined and even words like foreknew that appear uh, uh, that we already talked about, that around this word, there have been two main groups of people who are in complete disagreement with one another as to what this word signifies. So much so that the debates have gotten so hotly contested that they've, in some, some points in history, have gotten actually violent over this stuff. And so it surrounds this idea that one group of Christians, when they look at this word, they believe that this word signifies that God from before the world was ever created, from before you and me were created, as well as on back to anything, that God from before time began, predestined or decided unilaterally who would be saved and who would not. 
that from before the foundations of the world that God had decided who would make the cut and that others would not make the cut. And so you can probably see, even if you're maybe unfamiliar with these debates, how the other group on the other side of the aisle would be frustrated and sometimes infuriated by that because that group is holding tightly to this idea of free will that God has granted human beings, as they define free will, that God has granted human beings free will, the ability to respond to God's love and to choose. That if God chose automatically who would make the cut and who wouldn't from before time began, that that would eradicate free will. Now listen to me. These debates, they are not unimportant, okay? They're, They're very important debates to have. And I would probably say that in this room right now, we have a host of people who would fall on either side and some of the spectrum that exists in between. But listen, while these debates are not unimportant, listen to me, I think sometimes they can be a sad distraction to what Paul is actually trying to say when he uses this word predestination in this passage or predestined in this passage. So, If there are those of us in the room that are clinging to some theological commitment in other groups, I'm just going to ask you to let that go for a minute. Rather than cling to your theological commitment or your prior commitment, look and see what Paul is actually saying here. So rather than cling to the commitment and and inject things that are foreign to Paul's actual context and what he's trying to say, can we just look at what this word is doing in this particular sentence? And so if we do that, we actually come to discover that if you look up this word predestined in the original language, in the Greek in which the book of Romans was written, you would actually discover uh, pretty quickly that we derive two English words from the Greek word that appears behind the English word predestined in this passage. So two words that we get in English, and they're these. So we actually get the word pre, so the prefix pre, which means prior to or before. And then the second word that's embedded in the original Greek word is actually the word horizon. Horizon, as in a destiny or a goal. So kind of in this word, there's a little bit of imagery embedded into this. It has this idea of a person who is looking off at a distance to some horizon. They could see the horizon to some far off landscape or some future. And what they're doing is they are deciding or determining the route that they are going to take before they even start to get there. So in other words, a traveler, in effect, looks at the horizon and he predestines the route that he is going to take to move forward to that horizon. So let me actually just put it to you this way. Um, Let's just say I have a block of Play-Doh in my hand, which I just happen to have here today, this morning. It's real, it's here. I know that last night some people couldn't see it. So, all right, I've got this Play-Doh, hypothetically. No, I actually do. Now let's just say, hypothetically, that I am an all-good all-wise, all-knowing, master Play-Doh craftsman, okay? And what I'm looking to do with this pliable material is I am looking to do something amazing and good and beautiful with it. Like I'm looking at this and it's like, oh, that's so formable. I want to shape this into something incredible. So unlike children who get a hold of Play-Doh and who just wind up eating it, 
and going to the emergency room. No, instead, me as the all-wise, skilled, mature, Plato craftsman user, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to dream about what I want this thing to be as I get my hands on it. And then in my mind, I'm going to develop the horizon. I'm going to establish a template, okay? So this is a template of a house. It's literally the biggest thing I had to show you. It's cheesy, but nevertheless, here's my template, okay? And so what am I going to do here? I'm going to get this template. What I'm doing with the template is I am, in effect, looking to the future of what I want this thing to be when it's all said and done. And I am deciding in advance. I am predestining to make this thing look exactly like the vision that I have that's embedded in the template. And so as I begin to take this pliable material and I begin to work it with all my power, all my ability, all my skill as a master craftsman, and I begin to work with this material, and the pliable material begins to be oozed into or squeezed into the shape, which, by the way, the word conformed in Romans 8.29 literally means to be squeezed into the shape of a mold. As I do this, if I think about from the perspective of the pliable material of the Play-Doh, oh man, sometimes this thing is going to hurt, right? And other times, I'm going to be so excited because I can feel myself being formed into the contours of the template that God is at work, that when I I, as the master craftsman, continue to work this thing into the template. What I end up with in the end, oh Lord, please help me get this out of here. Okay, what I end up here with the end is this thing looking exactly like the template. This thing is now exactly what I predestined this pliable material to be. I think you can already see it. Apply this to what Paul is actually saying in Romans 8, 29. Guys, what has God decided beforehand to do with a follower of Jesus? What has he predestined for a follower of Jesus? Now, this is interesting because as you look at it, it's not what we might normally think because it's not populated. This verse is not populated by the things that we inserted in the fill in the blank. What is God predestined for followers of Jesus? Well, what he doesn't say is for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be saved. He doesn't say that here. Now, we may get that theology. We may get that belief in other spots in scripture. I'm not contending that at all. But right here, Paul does not say that. He does not say for those God foreknew, he also predestined to go to heaven when they die. That's not the goal. That's not God's great desire. He doesn't say, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be materially and financially prosperous. Paul does not say, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be self-confident and self-actualized. No. What does Paul say? Paul says that more than anything else, more than anything else in the world, that God has leveraged all his power, all his ability, and he invites us into a partnership and the destination that as we walk along the road, the destination that God has already predestined a follower of Jesus for is to be conformed to the image of his son. For our lives to be increasingly squeezed into the shape of the template of Jesus, right? That as God 
encounters or involves himself in a relationship with you that God himself, with all his power, wants to mold you. He wants to shape you. He wants to sand off the rough edges of your life. And we are seeing here in this passage that we have the template. We have the destination. We have the goal for the glorious and beautiful finished product and what that is supposed to look like. We have the destination. The destination that God wants for us is Jesus Christ. God has moved heaven and earth to ensure that if a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, he owns the responsibility in partnership to become like Jesus Christ. Now, some have called this process discipleship. That's another term or word that's used in scripture to describe the process of the path that get us to the goal of Christ-likeness. Some have called it a spiritual growth. Some have called it spiritual formation. See what we did there, formation, or spiritual transformation, or some have called it an abiding life with Christ and engaging in that. But listen, guys, whatever you call it, no matter what you call it, to put it much more simply, God fills in the blank like this. More than anything else, God wants Christ-likeness for your life. God wants you to be more and more like Jesus, his character, his mindset, his heart, his willingness to lay his life down and serve others so that they could benefit. That's God's great goal for every one of us. And so if we have the goal, if we have the destination, we might ask, well, what are the first steps? What's the path? How do we move forward together? I just want us to keep in mind that this is simply an introduction to this series today. It's just an introduction. So it is likely that you may have more questions right now than you have answers, and that's okay. And and some of the questions you might have is like, okay, what is Christ-likeness? What does it mean to have the character of Christ? What does that look like? It's a great question. You might have a question like, okay, if it's me in partnership with God, but if he's sort of owning all the power, and how does that work? Is it like a 50-50 thing? Is it 100-0? Is it 65-35? I hope I got my math right. What does that look like? Great question. And here's what I'm gonna ask. If you have questions, that's okay. Since this is an introduction, all I'm gonna ask you to do in response to those questions you might have. And next step, number one, just commit, please. Commit to engage in this series. We are going to walk through the book of Romans together and our hope and our dream and our goal is to show how Paul in the book of Romans gives us these pit stops on the road to Christ's likeness that will help us answer those questions and more. So just please commit, like come back next week. We're gonna talk about those very things as this series unfolds. And then another way that we just, our team has come up with that we would love for you to get connected into this series is for you to go invest yourself in the book of Romans on your own during the week, um, during the time between us connecting and the conversations on the weekend. And since we wanna go on this journey together, we don't wanna do it solo because one of the means, I think, of God actually sanding off those rough edges of our lives and shaping us into Christ is that he puts other people, other Christ followers in our lives to help us get to the destination. We wanna do it together, so we're just asking, would you consider finding maybe one other person or two or three other people? Would you find one other person 
and just commit that through this series, commit to walk through the book of Romans with us together. Guys, let's do this together. Let's figure this out together. And again, one of the ways that we have come up with as a team to help maybe just reinforce the value and the importance of community and doing this together is that we have actually uh, made available for purchase at the Welcome Center uh, these ESV scripture journals of the book of Romans. Now, if you don't know what an ESV scripture journal is, it's awesome. If you open it up, literally on the left-hand side of the page is the text of the book of Romans. In the right-hand side of the page, it's just underlines. Like, it's just a spot for you to write your reflections. What is God teaching you? To write your questions. What confuses you about the passage? And as you potentially interact with others in the book of Romans, as you study it together, that as you interact, like writing down the insights that you had in conversation with the other person or the other people that you're walking through Romans with. Again, this is just an excuse for us to do this together, for us to do this in community and run after God's great vision and goal for our lives and how that can change our lives in real time. And we're selling these again at the, at the Welcome Center but we're not selling them individually. We're only selling them in pairs. That, that is just like, I'm sorry, I got an awe here. I, I, like, that is just considered a lame attempt to be like, we're serious. God works in relationships with each other as we engage his spirit in his word together. So pick one of these up and, and listen. I mean, just go grab another person. And if you're like, I don't know how to study the Bible, the other person that I plan on doing this with doesn't know how to study the Bible. We've actually taken care of that for you too. Like there are bookmarks in each scripture journal that you purchase on the front and the back. It's just some kind of tried and true like three, four step process to as you go to any passage of scripture in the book of Romans. If you kind of walk through this process, it's almost like guaranteed to actually get something uh, true and good out of that passage to interpret it and mine it for all it's worth in a productive way. So please, Grab a hold of one of these. Dive into the book of Romans. Do it together. Now, the last thing is we say this all the time, but it's true. Get in a life group. If you're not in a life group, you gotta get in a life group because spiritual growth and transformation doesn't just occur in one-on-one or one-on-few disciple-making relationships, discipleship relationships. That occurs when you surround yourself with a community of people that the Holy Spirit of God uses to help sand off those rough edges of your life. God uses biblical community to get us on the path and to further us toward the great goal that he has of Christ-likeness. And lastly, this week, before you come back next week, this week, just wanna invite you in your time with God every day, to open your heart to him about the three realities that are present in Romans 8, 29, and just simply ask him this. God, help me believe that. Help me believe you own the process, that it's not up to me that you've moved heaven and earth and you have all power and authority to get the job done. God, help me believe that I am also not simply to be a passive observer in this, that I'm invited to participate in this process, locking arm in arm with you. And God, help me to see more than anything that what you want for my life is Jesus, that Jesus is the goal. Guys, I gotta tell you, I am, I am so thrilled and excited to be walking through this with you together. And again, I'm so happy that we get a chance to do this as a community to run after God's vision and his goal for our lives. All right, let's pray. Father, we recognize that you have all the power, all the authority, 
And we recognize from the series we came out of in Exodus 34 that you are good, that you are gracious, you're compassionate, that you maintain your love for us, your commitment and your devotion to us. And for that, we are thankful that as we will discover when we walk through Romans, that you in your steadfast character, you've been so faithful to rescue us from sin and death and an old deteriorating lifestyle because you have shown up to own our rebellion and sin in the person of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross and his victorious resurrection. And so God, we are thankful that you have brought us into new life. You make that available to us by faith. But we wanna thank you that we're reminded today that you don't leave us on our own that you exercise all of that power and that goodness and the authority to walk with us on the road, to mold us and shape us, to form us into something that increasingly looks like Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we say thank you that you don't abandon us, that you walk with us and that you are dead set on getting us to the end. Jesus, we wanna thank you for your willingness to be obedient to the Father's plan to secure that for us and the work that you do by pouring out your Holy Spirit that helps get us to that goal. Jesus, we are just asking, would you form us and shape us? Would you reorient our perspectives on what it means to be great, what it means to be image bearers of God, what it means to be fully alive people who are doing exactly what God the Father intended us to do in relationship. Jesus, we worship you now, even as we take some time to sing our praises and our, and our gratitude to you for you making it possible and you owning the process. We love you. Ignite our hearts toward all these things and we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.